there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own Organic Oasis Um, It starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay, what Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for Mother Earth. Do you love to listen to audio as much as I do? Have you ever tried an audio book? As a fan of this podcast, you must already enjoy listening to stories just like the other green future growers. Well, the Organic Gardener podcast has teamed up with Audible to offer you a free audio book. Just go to www.organicgardenerpodcast forward slash book or type book into the search bar at the organicgardenerpodcast.com and you can get listening to your first audio book today. Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast Day. I am super, super, super excited to introduce my guest. So it's Monday, March 11th, 2019. And from the Permaculture Podcast, here is Scott Mann. And I know a lot of listeners, you have probably been listening to his show, but I am just thrilled that he's here to share with us today. So welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you for having me, Jackie. Well, we're so excited that you are here to join us. So do you want to tell listeners if there are some people out there that maybe haven't listened to your podcast or know anything like a little bit about yourself? Okay. Yeah, I grew up throughout the 80s and 90s. And as a result of that, I was part of that group that was planning for what we were really concerned about at the time, which was the computer disaster known as Y2K. And when I was going to college in the mid-90s, I interned at a government facility. And while we were there, myself and many of the other interns were examining these kinds of problems. And while we were looking at that, my friends and I, who I was living back with in my college town, were also a bit concerned about this. And this was when there was a lot of back to the land and disaster preparedness going on. And so my friends and I were looking for solutions. And as I looked at what the government was doing to prepare for this kind of a problem, I started looking for community-based options. And that led me to permaculture. But at the time, as you can imagine, as we were still kind of building up the digital landscape, as our access to books from all over the world was still relatively difficult because we had to import a lot of things from Australia or Europe if we were looking for books on permaculture. And, you know, our music albums at the time, there were a lot of imports and things that were very popular. We didn't have ready access to so much. I was introduced to these ideas and started exploring permaculture then as a way for a collective of people to find a solution regardless of where they were or what they might encounter. But of course, that disaster did not happen in 2000 past with barely a hiccup. And so these ideas kind of went into my back pocket and I went into a career and started working for a while. But then I still kept thinking about permaculture 
and the way that we could work with design and caring for the earth and people and how we might return any kind of a surplus we would have from a yield to the, the land and those around us. And so it was around 2007 or 2008 that I began looking for a permaculture design course in depth and with meaning. And it always seemed like I had the time or the money to take one, but never both at the same time. Right. You know, I could get the va the vacation, um, but perhaps I was working a job or had some kind of a lifestyle crisis that didn't allow me to go and spend at the time. You know, per permaculture permaculture design courses were fifteen hundred or two thousand dollars. They were often two two and a half weeks at some kind of a destination. And so I just kept looking and eventually found one that was being taught about an hour from where I was on weekends over seven months. And so I just signed up for the course and took it. And it was a great opportunity. And it was as I was finishing my permaculture design course, because I had a background in computer science and also had done radio while I was in college, that I decided to go ahead and launch the permaculture podcast in October of 2010. Well, that is an amazing story. So, and so that's why you're up to like episode 1907, I think was published just this week, right? Or today? Uh, well, that's my numbering system in order for me to keep track of things. That's an old kind of computer science thing yeah. where I use the first two digits represent the year and then the second two digits represent the episode number for that year. So even though I'm on episode 900 and, or 1907, that's the seventh episode of 2019, but I do oh. have more than 550 episodes in the archives. Well, that is still a huge number or so. And to be doing this all the way back from 2010 is um, a long time. You're like one of the, I feel like, you know, like foundational podcasters. I know there were people before that, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's still way before my time of even listening to podcasts. So, uh, I don't know. Where do you want to go next? I usually ask about like people's very first gardening experience like were you a kid were you an adult but well a lot of my connection to the earth and why i had this interest in permaculture because of its land-based focus when i first started studying it is some of my earliest memories were i grew up in a kind of a peri-urban area on the edge of a city in Western Maryland. And I just have these early thoughts of wandering out to my parents' garden. They raised onions and strawberries. Those were the two patches that we had. And I would walk out and my parents would talk about this, you know, when I was still in diapers and could walk, I would just walk to the edge of the onion patch while my father or mother were in the backyard. And I'd be pulling spring onions out of the ground and just eating them and, you know, getting covered in bits <laughs> of strawberry. And that's just where, you know, those are the earliest things. And then Throughout my childhood, I was fortunate that my father was a good mentor for me, even though he was not someone connected to the land in the same way that I was. He spent a lot of time taking me out hiking and camping and out into the wilds, encouraged me to become a scout, both as a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout, to continue those interests and opportunities. And then my friends, when I was in high school and college, were all the kinds of folks who liked to go hiking and spend time outdoors. And so I just kind of continued that connection. And then, you know, there was probably eight years or so where I was very much an indoors person, you know, working in IT and spending a lot of times not seeing the sun, but it always called to me. And that was also why while I was working 
on the Permaculture Podcast, I returned to graduate school to learn more about natural resource management and environmental and environmental education. And it was during that course that we were asked the question, you know, what were these foundational moments that connected us to the world around us? And out of the 88 people in that cohort, you know, 86 of those folks were all looking to be park rangers or park managers. The only folks who weren't were myself and one other. But almost everyone talked about having these moments when they were in like that 10 to 12 year old range that really kept them grounded and connected to the other than human and the natural world. And I can certainly say that I had those same experiences. I feel like we have very similar upbringings and my parents were always really good about taking us out in nature a lot. And so um, I can totally relate to that. So do you want to, Tell us about permaculture design principles and things like that. Sure. There's a lot of times <laughs> with the principles of permaculture, a lot of those will depend on who the author is. So I'll hold off on that for a minute. So let's kind of start at the beginning with a little bit of the history and the ethics of permaculture. And then we kind of can kind of dig in from there and I can sit suggest some books that I'd recommend people read Excellent. if they'd really like to dig into these ideas a bit further. Um, I think of permaculture as a system of ethical design and that through conversations that I've had with people like David Holmgren, who's one of the founders and some other people, that the idea of this is that even though very often we talk about it from a land use perspective and gardening and how do we raise food, you know, this portmanteau of Permaculture was originally about permanent agriculture, though as David Holmgren and Bill Mollison began to explore these ideas further, it quickly became more of an idea of how do we develop permanent culture and how can we meet all human needs through design, you know, whether that's governance and alternative economics or sustainable food systems. And so we often joke that, you know, permaculture is about how can we design systems that provide all of our food, fuel, fun, and fiber um, and that's where it kind of comes from. And within that are these ideas of the ethics of earth care, people care, and originally limit population and consumption. Though over time, that third ethic has become one of, you'll hear it sometimes expressed as fair share, though I prefer return of surplus. And through that, you know, they're kind of in that order that when we're thinking about the decisions that we're going to make, that with earth care, you know, is the choice that we're going to be making something that cares for the earth. And if not, well, then why are we doing it? You know, and from there is what we're doing going to care for people around us. And if not, you know, then why are we making this decision? And then finally, is what we're doing in some way going to create a surplus that we can return to the world at large, whether that's something as simple as composting our kitchen scraps so that we can return that to the ground and recycle those nutrients or creating some kind of a yield in our lives, you know, financially that we might be donating to organizations or helping to um, work with others. Or even, you know, in my own case with the podcast, I'm taking my educational surplus and returning it because, you know, there are plenty of people who can't follow the path that I've gone on to graduate school or to spend all this time that I have developing all of these thoughts and ideas in permaculture or recording all of these interviews. So part of my return of surplus is creating the permaculture podcast and sharing all of these resources freely wherever anybody can, 
access these ideas, um, you know, through a computer, a smartphone or wherever else they can happen to connect with me. And then from there, there's kind of this hierarchy that I have, this pyramid that I use, you know, we have the ethics and then from there are the principles. And with those principles, as I say, it kind of varies from author to author, but probably the most well-known are the 12 principles that David Holmgren enumerates in his book, Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, which is now in its second edition. Um, but, you know, you'll find them from any of the various permaculture authors, um, Toby Hemingway, who passed several years ago, wrote the book Gaia's Garden, which is the number one selling book on permaculture ever written. And he has a number of principles in his book. And many of them do line up and you'll find similar things across different authors. Uh, but there's a little bit of variability in there. But with those principles, regardless of how you find them listed or what they might be, they kind of serve as, as reminders when we're working on design, the kinds of things that we should consider and look at when we're working on design. And from those two kind of hierarchical ideas of starting with the ethics and moving through the principles, and I can share some of those principles here in a moment. From those principles, the next step for me is developing strategies. And so when we look at principles, uh, David, Holmgren's in, David Holmgren's in particular, the first of those, which if people would like to follow along, and see this list, they can go to, let me make sure that I have the URL for this right. That's fine. We can, and we can put it in the show notes. For anyone who would like to follow along uh, while we're talking about this, permacultureprinciples.com is operated by Richard Telford, uh, who works with David Holmgren, and he has this list there. Um, but like the first principle that David Holmgren shares with us is observe and interact. And the idea there is that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But it's a reminder that, you know, whenever we walk onto a site, we should take our time to see what's already there while also imagining what it is that we would like to build or grow in that space. And that once we spend some time observing that we need to make sure that we actually work on this vision. And that's where the interaction comes in. And for me, those ideas of, of observe and interact lead to a variety of strategies when I walk the land or I'm talking with someone about what they want to do with permaculture. And so, you know, making sure that when we're looking at the land that we're not trying to design at the same time, or when I'm sitting down and asking someone to share their goals, that it is just about listening to their goals and hearing what it is that they want to see happen around them. And then from, you know, applying those principles and creating strategies, that is ultimately where our technique comes in. That's ultimately where our techniques come in, where if we're looking at a garden, you know, deciding where exactly we are going to place what we're growing, whether or not we're going to do raised beds or double dug. And, you know, that's where we can really pull from many of these different disciplines that are available in the world from, you know, no-till to organics to beyond organics or anything else that we might have access to that can be brought in underneath this large umbrella of permaculture. And that's just kind of a really quick, you know, one principle walkthrough from the ethics to, you know, how we might think of a garden. But we have so many different um, principles. You know, that was just the first one from David. 
and I won't go through all of them here because all this information is out there and you'll find plenty of websites that share a lot of information to go into these in depth. And as I say, permacultureprinciples.com is a great place to go. But like his third principle that David shares with us is obtain a yield. And to me, that goes back to that third ethic of making sure that we generate enough from what we are doing to be able to give something back while also making sure that we meet our own needs from the work that we're doing. Because as David reminds us, you can't work on an empty stomach. So making sure that, you know, if we're working on a garden, that we're growing foods that work in our climate, that we are growing things that we're actually going to eat, growing things that, depending on what our desires are, that we might be able to share with a neighbor or invite friends and family over for a harvest party at the end of the season. And, you know, even if it is just one meal, to have enough of a bounty to give back to the earth and the people around us. That's awesome. Uh, so those are two of the principles. Like mm -hmm. what did you want to talk about after that? Um, or... <laughs> uh, this is uh, the, for me, this is one of those places because I'm so close. I've been so close to the ground to permaculture for so long that stepping back into this place is, um, you know, I think about this all the time. So it's what kind of things do you think your audience would be interested in? Would you like me to walk through two or three more of the principles and some of those thoughts and we can, can kind of go from there? And maybe I can walk you through like what my design process is. Yeah. Or some of the other ideas. Um, One of the questions, I, I don't know. I saw that thing called the Possibility Handbook on your website. Oh, that's its own can of, that's very much social permaculture in action. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, let me give you two more per, uh, permaculture principles. Perfect. And then let's talk about like how this applies. We can talk a little bit about like permaculture as garden design. Okay. And then Excellent. maybe move into, the, I can talk more broadly about the other ways that permaculture works. And then maybe we can talk about the promo the possibility handbook. Okay, perfect. Okay. And just to introduce your listeners to a few more of the principles. And then I'm thinking we can talk a bit about how permaculture applies to like a garden with some of the other strategies and techniques that exist within like permaculture education and what people might find in a permaculture design course. Um, but some of the other principles David Holmgren's principle eight is integrate rather than segregate. And his kind of subheading for this is many hands make light work. And like that idea really is about, you know, how can we bring all of the different pieces of our garden or our home or our community together? So when I'm thinking about a garden, I'm thinking about what are the pollinators that I can grow within my garden space. And for me here in central Pennsylvania, I absolutely love lavender and yarrow, but I also love growing onions and letting those go to seed and not harvesting those as some of my pollinators. Um, but also growing plants for seed also goes back to that idea of obtaining a yield. And I was reading and, a thing recently about how like onions and yarrow, like have those kind of umbrals and those are some of the best for bringing in your beneficial insects, right? Yes, and that's what I absolutely love about it. Yarrow and fennel in particular, I see a lot of the brachiated wasps, the uh, parasitic wasps that take care of things like my tomato worms. Um, and, you know, planting those things, it doesn't take a lot just around the edges or, you know, at the ends of your garden rows can really make a huge difference. And there's also, 
I've read, I don't, I've never played with this that much, but also the idea of doing predator confusion. I, you know, and that's another place where doing this kind of integration comes in because as you have these other plants that it, you know, you're not drawing them into these big monocultures of just one thing. It's also, I think about companion planting. One of my favorite things to grow together are are garlic and strawberries because the strawberries act as my ground cover and then the garlic comes up between those leaves. And, you know, I have here in central Pennsylvania, I have usually one harvest of garlic in June or July, depending on how the weather turns. But by using ever-bearing or day-neutral strawberries, I can harvest strawberries from about two weeks after our last hard frost in the spring up until about a week after the frosts set in in October. And, you know, to have strawberries throughout this entire period, but they act as a ground cover. So I'm not having to worry about mulch because of those big leaves as they get established. And, you know, they'll last three years or so, but I can still propagate those from the runners if I want to. And then with my garlic, very often as I'm pulling the bulbs out of the ground, I'll let those dry for, you know, four to six weeks, braid them, put them up. But then I can almost immediately be returning some cloves to the ground. I just stick them, you know, back in those spaces between my strawberries and have them ready for the next year, growing them almost like a perennial crop. That's perfect. Um, Mike and I were just talking about growing more garlic because somebody asked a question in my Facebook group about they had some garlic that had come up. Um, from last year that they thought had died, they, somebody parked a camper over it and they thought it didn't make it. And she has like these shoots coming up and she was wondering, should she separate them? Cause they're really clumped together in a small space or should she wait till the fall to separate them? Yeah. And that's where I've heard about growing garlic almost perennially where there are some folks, what they'll do is when they pull them up, they'll go ahead and break the bulb and put one of those cloves directly back into the ground and then spread their broken bulbs across, you know, a mesh uh, frame and just let them dry there rather than, you know, braiding and drying them traditionally as whole bulbs. And I've done some of that too. And I find that to be just as effective. I hadn't had a problem, um, but I do feel that having a good ground cover like the strawberries or a mulch makes a difference because of keeping them cool uh, throughout those summer months, depending of course on how your climate is. We get some days here that can be, you know, in 95 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit with very high humidity. And so I'm always making sure that I'm trying to protect my ground. I have a feeling we have very similar climate. We're um, in the Rocky Mountains in northwest Montana. So, but the other thing I was super excited about this is like, I, so this year my goal is to get blueberries going, um, started in our garden and raspberries. We used to have great raspberry bushes and I don't know, something happened and they kind of faded out. So we planted a new raspberry bed last year. And then I tasted these blueberries at my friend's house, who's just pretty close through the woods. And I was like, I am going to grow those. But then in 2020, my big focus is strawberries. But maybe Mike will put some strawberries in because he was talking about planting a lot more garlic this year. Mm -hmm. So, so exciting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll let you go on. My listeners are always like, oh, no, Jackie, don't it's... talk so much. <laughs> my three favorite, or I shouldn't say my three favorite things because that ignores my children. But my four favorite things to raise are really strawberries, garlic, children, and cats. And so... <laughs> You know, you mentioned strawberries and it just is one of my favorite things. And it's where, you know, your day neutral, your ever bearing, your alpine strawberries. I really like growing those compared to something like a June bearing because, as I say, yeah. with a small patch, we were able to harvest anywhere from a pint to a quart of strawberries every week for months on end. And even though, you know, it's great to get those big strawberries and bake a pie or make strawberry shortcake from them or something like that. 
I really look at ways that I can maximize my harvest over a season. And that's also one of the focuses in permaculture when we talk about land use. A lot of times we talk about perennials or other plants that will bear for a long time. So hearing that you're looking at bringing in blueberries, uh, that makes me so happy. I absolutely loved raising them even though I did not have the best results with them. There was just a great joy in being able to walk out and harvest some blueberries. And also I had some currants with them and those were awesome too. Yeah, well, that's what happened was we tried them a few years ago, but it, it was, we've had some water shortages on our property. Like for the first six years, we had no water. Then we dug a shallow well. Then we finally dug a deep well. And I think we put the blueberries in back when maybe we were like still hauling water and they weren't in a good spot. And so I talk about living with water shortages and we're in very dry Montana. And so water's a huge issue at like our, at, over our whole garden journey. And so, um, I was so, I couldn't believe it when I saw her blueberries last year, I was just like, Oh my gosh. So I, that's why I'm bound and determined to try those this year. Yeah. And that's, see, I'm on the other side of that is we're very water rich with, um, rainfall or rainfall equivalent of more than 40 inches a year. We get nearly, you know, the equivalent of one inch per week during our growing season, which is about optimal. Um, but we do get usually seasonal flooding, especially during the hurricane season. And that's what took out my blueberries. Okay. I'd placed them in an area where I thought that they were high enough, but then we got one of what was, you know, one of those hundred year floods that totally wiped those and a lot of other things that we've been working on completely out. And it was, you know, using that first principle, I had observed flooding on this property where I was growing over a number of years before I started really putting in the garden. And then, you know, as the water course changed, as the weather changed, and as, as the climate gets a little bit warmer, a little bit wetter, it was enough to just bring a few extra inches of rainfall and it was enough. Um, so completely changed my design and now working with my parenting partner and my children, we've had to kind of move much of our garden upslope into the areas that have absolutely never flooded because they rest a four to six feet above our highest watermark. So, but that I really think leads really well into one of the other principles that I wanted to share with you and your listeners, which is principle 12 from David Holmgren, which is creatively use and respond to change. And for me, that's where, you know, we may walk on to the land and have an idea of what it is that we want to do with it. But as the situation that we're involved in changes, you know, in my case, not only does that involve the flooding, but also going through a divorce and no longer living on the land with my parenting partner and my children. How do we continue these processes throughout whatever happens? And how can we work in ways that are new and different to see that way through? And, you know, with the landscape, we have the opportunity to move things up and away from that area that was flooding. But I did modify my design and put in a bunch of raspberries on one edge of the property and grew this thick range of brambles, which now when the water flows through the landscape, those brambles catch a lot of the debris that used to roll through. But also in that field, I've planted things that are very water loving, like elderberry. I find that my elderberry, you know, I can swamp those you know, and have them stand in a foot of water for a week and they will grow back twice as vigorous the next year. And, you know, they survive hard cuttings. I've got comfrey out there that's growing really well and just kind of working through that. But as permaculture is also about really any human system, it also, I look at the way that it relates to our friends and family, to our community. And it was as my partner and I realized that we were not in a place that we could continue our marriage 
you know, we wanted to figure out how could we still be a family. So we looked at what were the least destructive ways to go through divorce in Pennsylvania. And one of those options was mediation. And so the two of us went and we sat down with a lawyer and that person worked with both of us together to find an amicable solution. And so we were able to move through that process and still continue to be a family, even though we are no longer together. We still go on vacation with our children, you know, several times a year. We still do things together as a family unit all the time, having dinner together, you know, if we want to go to the movies or go hiking together. And really, I think that my background in permaculture and thinking about that care of people, that it was more important to care about my children and this person who had meant so much to me than to try to fight through this divorce or anything else. And so I really do feel that my background led me to want to consider different paths than what so many people around me were saying was the only way, which was, you know, to fight it out in court and litigate, litigate, litigate. And no, we were able to do some research and look and see that there were other options. Well, uh, I am so glad to hear that because I really feel like kids coming out of a family that has a bad divorce is just you like as a school teacher, I've seen the impact of that. So that's amazing that you've been able to do that. And I think that's probably as part of your success if you're sharing that so openly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and that's I don't want anyone to not know about all of these opportunities or ways that they can move through their lives because one of my guests who's just an amazing permaculture practitioner out of Australia, uh, Tasha Kluna, who also goes by the name the Perma Pixie, she talked about that in her work with permaculture feels that we really need to be thinking about a fourth ethic or at least to remember that we're all in a period of transition that as technology ramps up, you know, we were talking before we started the interview about where do we kind of fall generationally. I'm in that just pre-millennial kind of, you know, whether it's zennial or zennial, I've seen it spelled both ways, or we, if we want to be referred to as the Oregon Trail generation, you know, and millennials after that, that the lives that we are living in this digital world is nothing like the people who came before us. And so even the oldest of us who are in our early 40s, have largely lived a digital life, even as much as we may have wanted to not be like that. I remember the card catalog at my library became a computer when I was still in grade school. You know, my first computer came into our house when I was going into the sixth grade. You know, cell phones when I was a teenager were becoming relatively popular. I had an uncle who worked for AT&T, was one of their execs. I remember him having a car phone and it was such a novelty. He was having us call, you know, all of our family members, but that was in the, in the eighties. And so for many of us in this, um, millennial Gen Z kind of world that we, you know, we need to know what all our options are and what the different voices are. And that's why I love permaculture as this big umbrella because it applies to so many things. And there are lots of people who are trained in permaculture who are working on everything from how do we grow a better garden to how do we completely transform our societies. And really anything that we might want to do, we can step back and use those ethics and consider the various principles, whoever we get them from, whichever, whichever author we prefer, and really look at the ways that we can live intentionally and just create a better life. That the world that we came from is not the world that we're living in now. And together, we can do something more beautiful than we ever imagined. And all it really takes is us to, and all that it really takes for us to do is to talk and listen to one another. 
and know that there are other options available. See, I, I there's so much of this that is exactly like so many things that I've studied and I talked about and just a lot of it is about like, I wrote this paper on peace education and um, or what was it? Communication and nonviolence. I can't remember the name of it because it was like back in 2009. And uh, mm -hmm. I was trying to get my master's from um, a university in Oregon. Uh, but anyway... Uh, yeah, I totally believe it. And a lot of this, like, I feel like even though I graduated high school, I think in the eighties, like I'm quite a bit older, uh, this was kind of like what we believed growing up. And a lot of times I feel like it's a lot of the people in your generation, like your age group, like, I think it's like a talking about like a world of abundance as compared to a world of scarcity. Uh, do you feel mm -hmm. it? Am I totally off base there? No, I, I can definitely feel that. And it's interesting for me because my parents grew up with parents who had gone through the depression and still had a lot of those thoughts that you're always going to scrimp and save and you always need to make sure that there's a lot of food in the cabinet because it always seemed like there was a disaster looming on the other side. And yet, even with those kinds of thoughts and pieces of that as the upbringing is that because of, I think, access to resources and the way that farmers markets have grown and growing up with gardens and access to technology and information in ways that my parents could have never dreamed of when they were children, that there is something there that, I mean, at least for my parents, even though they instilled many of those ideas about saving and making sure that you're prepared, I mean, you know, that's really what brought me to permaculture in the beginning. They were also very interested in making sure that once you meet your basic needs, that you can still celebrate and have a good time and really enjoy yourself. And that there are ways that we can do that regardless of what we have access to. And because growing up, you know, the the grandson of poor Appalachian hillbillies, you know, very often it was just like, who could bring a couple of cases of beer? Who could bring some instruments? Who could bring some food? And, you know, we could feed 50 people, all of who I'm related to, for, you know, not a whole lot of money. As my grandmother would be frying chicken in the kitchen, my aunt would be frying bread, you know, my uncle would be slicing tomatoes and, you know, bringing the white bread and putting mayo on it and making tomato sandwiches and everything. And as we would go through that, then going out into the backyard and playing music until it's late in the night. But also, you know, on the other side of that, being able to go to a place like New York City and go to Broadway and, you know, have great tickets and see a really amazing show that, you know, we can do all of those kinds of things, too. And that regardless of where we are, there are all kinds of options that are just beautiful and available. But too often, I think that there are stories that are told to us about the way that the world has to be or about the way that the world is. And I think that for myself and many others who are in that, like, you know, mid forties and younger, we've kind of cast that off and rejected it because we've grown up in such a way and seen the world as more than anything that we've ever been told. And, you know, being able to connect with someone who's on the other side of the world with just a text message or a phone call. You know, one of my dearest friends who I went to college with was a German national. And when she returned to Germany, we were able to stay in touch and it made the world a lot smaller. And I think that as we've been able to shrink the world with technology, that it's also made it such a bigger place because we are no longer bound by necessarily geography, even though we may live local. You know, we may decide to be just within our biosphere and 
get something from our farmer's market and, you know, only shop within 50 miles of where we are. But it doesn't mean that we don't have access to everything else around us. And because of that, we can hear the stories told by elders in Australia. We can hear about all of these different beautiful cultures. And, you know, if we're invited in, be able to participate um, in the celebrations of all of these different rich traditions wherever we happen to live. And I think that that really has changed our ability and opportunity to live these lives that are just a bit brighter and a bit more than what we were told was possible. Yeah. Well, my listeners know that I agree with so much of what you said and just, um, so, well, I know you said you wanted to talk about some things, but at some point, I just want to make sure, will you talk about, like, your podcast? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we just spent some time there talking about kind of the bounty of this worldview, which I really do see so often reflected in the permaculture community as people continue to live differently and straddle that transition. Um I do kind of want to talk about this design process real quick and the way that for your listeners, I might think about the way that all of this applies to a garden. Cool. Um, but then I'd like to talk a little bit more about social permaculture because of a project that I've been working on for a couple of years called the possibility handbook. Awesome. And then kind of also let people know where they can find the show and what they can expect if they go listen. Perfect. Um, but yeah, when I think about permaculture as a design system, It really does start in the landscape because that's a place where we can talk in a common language because we can talk about gardens and what food we like to grow and things like that. And so when I think about the garden, the first thing that I always like to think about is kind of front door to car door and the places where we're going to to move through regularly. And that's where I think about where I would plant my vegetable garden. And that stems from this idea within permaculture of a zone model. And that goes from zones zero through five. In most instances, sometimes you also see a zone zero, zero. And in those cases of the zero, zero, that usually represents the self. But then zero is your home and the, the, or the place that you call home and those spaces that are really close to you. And then out there you have zone one, which is kind of where your garden would be. And so that's a place that you want to be visiting, you know, very frequently and where you'll be tending to and harvesting from almost every day. And then from there, as we kind of move out with those zones, it's the idea of like most visits and most influence are the lower numbers, whereas the higher numbers are places where we're not going to visit as often or take from as often. And so you were mentioning like your blueberries and, you know, blueberries and some of our shorter lived perennials or things that have a longer harvest cycle, we might put in zone two. And that's not necessarily near our front door or our regular vegetable garden, but it's a place that we can get to relatively quickly, you know, a place where we might be able to run a short hose to and be walking through a couple of times a week. And if we have a larger landscape, we might have a zone three, which would be where we're growing larger um, perennials such as, you know, our fruit trees and maybe some smaller nut crops. And that's where we might keep some smaller animals like chickens or a couple of goats or pigs. And then from there, we kind of move into a semi-wild space where we might not be visiting that often, maybe more than 
um, once a week or just going out to feed or move animals where we might be growing, you know, if we have larger livestock, if we're doing more of a farm arrangement. But that's also where we might be growing uh, timber trees and nut trees, things that are going to take a long time to develop and harvest from. And then as we move out from there, there's this thought of zone five, which is the wilderness. And that's a place where we may we may visit it frequently and go sit to meditate or to hike or to do a little bit of foraging. But generally, the wilderness is a place that we're not going to be taking from that often, but is a place that more we might go to tend and to make sure is it, that it's a space that's not being degraded or um, in any way harmed. But if it is, then, you know, what can we do to help preserve that space? And even though there are these six or seven zones, not all of them necessarily exist within a permaculture design. You know, as currently an apartment dweller, I really have a zone zero and a zone one. And that's about it. You know, there's this space that I work within that I want to make sure, you know, how am I taking care of earth best as I can, you know, that I have my recycling bin and am recycling as much as possible. What am I doing to preserve water? Um, and also, you know, I share the space with a roommate. What am I doing to make sure that my roommate is cared for within, you know, that second ethic of people care, you know, making sure that I'm taking care of the space as best as, as I can so that it doesn't impact him. And also making sure that, you know, I'm just something as simple as washing my dishes or taking the trash out. So it's something that my roommate doesn't have to be concerned about while also growing a couple of herbs in a pot when spring comes. Um, but because the way that the sun sets here, uh, over the space that, you know, I go and I pick those up in the spring from my local garden center and then grow them throughout the season as long as I can and then carry those herbs at the end of the season and compost them um, with my children at the end of the year, but still being able to do a little bit of something for myself here in this space. But something, you know, if someone has a large farm, then maybe they will have all five zones. Or if they're in a suburban environment, maybe they had to have zones zero through two and are growing some shorter lived perennials or smaller shrubs and bushes that they can work with. And kind of, you know, we just apply these things to the spaces that we're in and work with them as best as we can. Um, and just, you know, think about those ethics and principles where we are and how can we make the best use of them. And, you know, like I said earlier, making sure that we're growing the kinds of foods that we want to eat or that maybe if it's not necessarily something that we care for, it, that we might be growing it for somebody else who we care for, who does enjoy them. Um, but, you know, we just kind of work through these ethics and principles wherever we are. And that's really the the whole of permaculture design to me is that if you are well versed in the ethics and the principles, you can design anything. And so for anybody who really wants to learn about permaculture, I would recommend picking up either Gaia's Garden or Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. The first of those, as I say, from Toby Hemingway, the second from David Holmgren, because those are really going to walk you through, I think, the core fundamentals of permaculture. Um, David's is much more on the theory and the application of the ethics and principles broadly. But if someone would really like to learn about permaculture as gardening before they expand out from there, Toby's book, Gaia's Garden, is really a great place to start because he teaches you more or less anything that you could need to get off the ground with a successful garden that is influenced by permaculture. And then, you know, if you decide to take it from there and you really like 
Toby's voice. Then the last book that he wrote before he passed was The Permaculture City. And he really applies a lot of the ideas of permaculture more broadly into the space that I've been exploring over the past several years and talks about the way that, you know, if you're living in the in a city and you're not very good at growing things, then don't try to to grow food because that may not be the best use of your time and energy. It may be better for you to frequent your farmer's market and be paying someone who is really good at growing food so that they can keep doing that. And, you know, maybe if you're a good graphic designer, you offer to help them a little bit with their marketing materials. Or, you know, if you've got a great radio voice and you love working with technology, maybe you start a, a local a podcast that's talking about the city that you're in and the sustainability that's available in your region that really permaculture is about being the best at what you do while taking care of earth and other people and returning a surplus. So work on those areas that you're really good at and then support and work with the people who are doing the things that you're not good at. Because as much as we may need lots of people to be growing food, if we're going to have a sustainable future in the possibility of a world of energy decline and climate change, that we're still going to need doctors. We're still going to need people who are versed in the legal system. We're still going to need janitors and teachers and, you know, the whole host of human systems because we've moved so far into specialization. We need to make sure that we take care of the whole of our society. And as permaculture is about permanent culture, let's be the best that we are so that our society and the culture and the people around us can be the best that they are while looking at a more vibrant and beautiful future. You know, when I was growing up, this was just like what I believed, just like I thought everybody believed that's like, Oh, I wanted to be a hippie. Like, just like, that was kind of like, I felt like this was kind of a universal thinking. And it, it really kind of shocks me even today when I'm, meet up against people that don't just naturally believe this, even though, you know, they abound. Everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but it just, to me, it seems like so much basic common sense. And then I actually taught at an Indian reservation. And I have to say that, um, a lot of their culture was very much based on, um, you know, making sure everybody was taken care of and doing the best for the whole community, very community oriented. Um, and it just, I don't know, it seems like it makes sense, but I don't know. Yeah, and I know that this is something that I naturally gravitate towards. Before I went off and studied computer science, I was very much interested in sociology and anthropology because people in the way that we are just fascinates me. And then it was as I was looking at graduate school, looking for something that integrated people into the landscape. And that's around the time that I you know, ran across the spell of the sensuous and the idea of the other than human and the work of David Abram and what he was speaking to. And then, you know, these conversations about, you know, what were these fundamental events that connected us with the world around us? And yet, you know, I know plenty of people who didn't grow up this way, but when I go into places and I start talking with people, I'm always looking for those threads that connect us. And one of my favorite moments was working with a client and we were, um, shall we say, opposed politically <laughs> to many things. And as we were talking about these different pieces, it we kind of started moving in our own directions about this. And then we just kind of, both kind of looked at each other and realized that in the time that we'd spent with each other, we just really enjoyed one another's conversation and stepped back for a moment. It was like, you know, we really only disagree about 1% of things. Why would we have that, you know, break us apart or tear us down? You know, we're both here. We both care about our families. We both care about children. 
you know, and growing food and all these other, these other pieces. Why don't we focus on that? And he wound up becoming one of, you know, the dearest people who I've known within the permaculture community and who was interested in this. And even though to this day, our political views are diametrically opposed, we still talk about homesteading and family. And that's what really matters. And that's, you know, what I continue to look at is just all the pieces that we share with those folks around us. And, you know, it may be, Someone has completely different relationship views or family views, but we have the same political views. You know, what are these pieces that bring us together? Well, well let's work on that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I firmly believe in that, that we can all get along and that we can talk about our differences. And, and I think, you know, I think people are maybe starting to realize that. I don't know. Yeah. And it's just... When I asked David Holmgren about how do we grow the permaculture movement and make it mainstream, it was about how we don't do that. But instead, we find the people who are on the fence or who are already close to us and bring them into the fold and show them all the different ways that we can create something that's more – just more amazing than it currently is. You know, I keep going back to that idea of more bountiful, but that's what I keep thinking, you know, about – breaking down this idea of scarcity and instead focusing on abundance. And as you do your part to talk with people more about gardening, as I continue this exploration of permaculture, you know, more and more people hear our voices and connect with what we're doing. Those are the people who we bring into it. But then what are the knock-on effects of as we impact their lives, that they become a model for others and show them how they can be a difference. And this just continues to grow and grow and grow. And I think that in 10 years, we're going to be in a place where what we're doing today results in things that we can't even imagine now. And with that idea of transition, I don't see permaculture as the end of where we're going. I just see it as the way of it getting us to something that we don't even know the name for now. And that's where, you know, a lot of this other work comes in with the social permaculture work and this project that I'm working with with Ethan Hughes, which is long running. And I apologize to everyone who's waiting for the book um, as I'm on my now third rewrite. But it is about the story of Ethan Hughes and his community, the Possibility Alliance, and how they've lived without gasoline or any kind of petrol or electricity and the changes that they've made to be a model for others of what of what we can be and where we can go while also understanding that for many people, it's not where they are right now or where their lives could ever lead, um, that it's very forgiving. And it's one of the reasons why I love permaculture and many of the other people I've met along the way is that it's about helping us make better judgments without being judgmental. And I love Ethan because of of how he lives and what he's done that – you know, he's perfectly happy if, some, you know, one of his friends who's a lawyer gives up their giant luxury SUV and instead buys a luxury car that gets, you know, only three miles per gallon better, you know, fuel economy. But they made that choice and they made that decision. And so they're living their lives more intentionally in a way that is ethical and caring, you know, within the bounds of their life. And it's about how can we transform ourselves and our society. And so... I worked with Ethan to capture his story, and now in writing this book, it's also about weaving my story into it as well, because I'm one of those people who's on the cusp. You know, I still use technology every day, and here's my friend Ethan who has written one email in his life. 
you know, has used a computer a handful of times, but now does not. His only piece of technology for him and his wife, Sarah, and their children, in their community is a phone line. Um, because that's their connection to the outside world. They'd love to not have it and be complete with, completely with letters. But right now, that's the connection that they need. But sitting down with Ethan, you know, his idea for me is that maybe in 25 years, I don't have a computer, but instead I'm telling these stories that I've collected over decades to people directly face to face. And through his stories, what are the ways that we can, rather than resolve conflict, how can we transform it? And make it so that when we're in these tense moments, make it bigger. What are the different ways that we can work with resources that aren't necessarily monetary? What are the ways that we can meet our needs in community with others? How can we consider a future that is radically different from where we are while still living the life that we have in front of us? And so, yeah, the Possibility Handbook is taking all of these kinds of ideas of moving our lives in a way that we could have never thought about. And so that as we do these kinds of things bit by bit and day by day, that in just a matter of years, we can be living something complete, completely new while not upending where we were and what we've done, but instead being able to carry people along with us and invite them in. Do I dare ask, have you seen that movie Downsizing? With Matt Damon? Uh, is, I'm trying to remember which one is that. Is that it's the like documentary they, they, or is that? No, it's like a, it's oh, like a movie, that's the... movie where they shrink the people for the, for the environment because small people, they come up with this way to make people like the size of your pinky. Oh, no, I haven't seen that. Um, but it's definitely something that like you can't vision now, but then they like they move into the future so there's all these there's miniature it's like during the transition and people are like you know there's only some people that have done it in the beginning and um you know they talk you know what are the trade-offs and uh, i won't you know i won't spoil it for you in case you ever see it yeah. but it does have kind of like some surprises in it <laughs> well and i just look at my own life in the way that you know we plant these seeds and we work in these ways and that you know 15 years ago I wanted to burn every last drop of gasoline I could to go fast. You know, one of the first cars that I drove was a 1973 AMC AMX with a four, 401 cubic inch engine in it. And I got like nine miles to a gallon. And, you know, I grew up a motorhead with my father restoring cars and things. And I look at the way that just those pieces that he imparted me early on and encouraging me to live differently than he did that now all these years later, you know, I'm driving my little hybrid civic civic and I couldn't be happier, you know, trying to hyper mile and see what kind of fuel economy that I can get. And then, you know, all this technology that I've had for so long, but all the time that I spend wandering nature and I couldn't have imagined being there when I was still, you know, in IT working 60 or 70 hours a week, always being on call. And I thought that was going to be my life. And at the time I was totally happy with it. But then I spent years and years living in the gift economy, you know, going from earning, you know, $60,000 a year down to um, sometimes earning less than 6000 and still finding ways to make it work. And that, you know, within my own life, I couldn't, I just, yeah, I couldn't have thought that any of this would have happened or that I would leave the trajectory that I was on. And that's where I feel that, you know, myself and many other people 
have gone down this road without knowing how to get there, you know, in the beginning because of how few resources we had to us and just kind of forged a path. And now, you know, I've gotten to become this curator of all this information through the podcast and recording, you know, with 550 episodes in the archives now that the vast majority of those are interviews with people who have made a difference, whether they're doing gardening or natural building or getting involved in politics and talking about how can we apply permaculture to the political space and just getting to reach out to all of these different people and see the way that they're changing the world and changing people's lives. And that regardless of where we are or what we're doing, that by living intentionally and finding the voices that are doing the kind of work that we care about, we can do this too. And by making one choice today, whether that's to no longer use single use bags to always carry a reusable cup with you, you know, one little change in your life can be the thing that makes the difference for tomorrow and the next day as you see the impact that this change has for you. And just to look at your life right now and ask, what's a change right now that I can make that would care for the earth? What is a change that I could make right now that would care for myself and the other people around for me? What is a choice that I could make today that would create some kind of a yield that I could return to the world from what I'm already doing? You know, whatever we are in the world, whatever we feel called to do, how can we share that with others and with the world in order to do something that's more beautiful for ourselves and in the end do something that's more beautiful for, you know, this great place that we call our home and everyone and everything that lives here with us. Wow. Well, that's, these are like the kind of things that my listeners love to hear. Like you've just been so inspiring today and I know people are going to, um, just really enjoy this episode. I think they're going to want to listen to your podcast. Do you want to talk a little bit more about like some of the guests that you've had on your, some of these 550 guests? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) There's so many and they're, And it really is because of having talked to so many different people, just to give kind of, I guess, a a little bit of a rundown of the kinds of things that people can find is that I did, I've done a series on faith and earth care. And so one of my favorite guests was Ramis Kent. And we released three episodes, about three hours of content about Islam and earth care. And Ramis is a permaculture practitioner, um, an American living in the UK. And he and I sat down and talked about how his permaculture practices blend with his practice of Islam. And he talked about the various ways that within the Quran, you will find examples of earth care and about how, you know, people come from the earth within those traditions and how, you know, we're asked to care for this environment. Um, That's really one of my favorites. It's, you know, many years old, uh, but that's in there for folks if they'd like to explore these different ideas. Um, And to me, that also makes the world a little bit smaller because I had never explored Islam in that kind of depth. I was raised culturally a Christian. Uh, My godparents were Jewish, so I knew much more about those traditions. Um, But it was because of that mystery that I wanted to talk to Ramis. Um, If anybody wants to learn more about the Possibility Handbook and the work of Ethan Hughes and the Possibility Alliance and the superheroes and all the projects he's been involved, I have some conversations with him. Um, 
And the first is just all about like his vision, but also then he, we sat down and talked more about how we can practically apply those ideas. Um, Toby Hemingway, who I loved very much and got to know well outside in some private conversations, author of Gaia's Garden. There's an interview with him about his second book, The Permaculture City. If people would like to learn more about how to live in an urban or suburban environment and apply these ideas. Um, David Holmgren, one of the founders of Permaculture. I have several interviews with him and my co-host David Bilbrey will be recording another one with David here in the near future about his latest book, David's um, Retro Suburbia, which is all about how we can like retrofit a suburban neighborhood and apply permaculture to that space for a regenerative future. Um, mentioned my co-host, he's had conversations with people like Otto Sharmer, who wrote about Theory U and some other like organizational development ideas. And David does a lot of, David, my co-host, David Bilbrey, does a lot of conversations about regenerative business and how we can apply business to permaculture. And, you know, many of those are in the archives. Um, man, yeah, there's just so many great folks who I've gotten to talk to over the years about a wide range of ideas. Um, hmm. Joshua Hughes is someone else who I would recommend people check out in my archives. He's done a number of conversations. He and I have done some conversations on his work. Uh, he lives in Costa Rica. And But from there, he's working on doing some regenerative practices um, with business and investing in the rainforest and other areas to preserve those areas while also making a living for the folks who live there. We've also had some pretty intense conversations about permaculture and politics um, and getting involved. And though he's very clear um, about his views and maybe more left than some people are used to, you know, he also, because of where he's lived and the way that he was raised, also has some conservative views. So we can try I to break ask, down. Like what you so, yeah. do you have like an opinion about like the Green New Deal and like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or Bernie or any of those people? Um <laughs> I am a leftist anarchist personally. Um and am not a fan of large hierarchies, but at the same time I do take that idea of transition to heart. And so I feel that people like Bernie um, and AOC are really the folks who I care more to listen about. It's also because of my training in natural resource management. Many of the things that they're talking about are much more conservative from a land base and resource use than some of the other things that are out there about, you know, burn, baby, burn, let's go get as much coal and natural gas as we can. I just don't see – it doesn't make sense to me. We know that this, that this is a finite, un, uh, finite resource. We live on a finite planet. Why would we do that to ourselves? You know, um, the Green New Deal, I think, is being talked about incorrectly because it's not really about the green side as much as it is as a, an economic policy. When I dig into the depths of it, it's just how do we get a new deal as an economic policy that is green? Um, and I mean, I've I've studied natural resource law and policy and looking at it, you know, I right now I think it's the best thing out there. You know, until somebody else proposes another idea, I'm not going to I'm not going to tear it down because we need solutions. And it at least is a starting point for us to start talking about this kind of stuff. Um, you know, I look at the world right now and with automation and some of the other things that are coming online and the ability to become more efficient within our jobs. I think that universal basic income is something that we need to be having serious conversations about right now. Um, when it comes to investment in technology, we're already funding some of the worst things out there 
um, with tax cuts and subsidies, which, you know, if we want to argue about socialism, if we're giving people subsidies for things, it's just, you know, government sponsored business. So why aren't we talking about how we're going to take care of our citizens? You know, it's just labels and everything else. So let's actually at least get some stuff out there that we can talk about. Um, and that's where I think that a lot of these conversations are going right now. And, you know, even when we look at some of the things where we're talking about drug policy and things like that, for me, that's, you know, where are we going with our communities? You know, how can we take care of these, of these people who've been harmed because of draconian work, you know, and as our research gets out there, what are the different things that we need to be taking to heart about what actually builds up the people around us? What is actually dangerous? Um, you know, I don't know that any of these things are the best thing, but yeah, they just at least give us a place to start. Uh, Scott, <laughs> I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but I know you're busy and um, we just have so much in common. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you just want to tell people how to get a hold of you, I guess? Do you have anything you want to end with? I do. I mean... <laughs> I do have my final question that I always kind of ask, like, uh, do you want to go with that or is there well, anything let me go ahead you want to talk for... about that I didn't, I'll be quiet. Go ahead. Yeah. First, I'd like to apologize to your audience because I know that I kind of took a shotgun approach to this and hit a little bit here and a little bit there, but it's really the umbrella of permaculture is so big and there's so much that you can do about it. And really the first place to start, I really is to start asking questions about ourselves and our life and where we are. Um, you know, what do we want to see? Start with that big vision. You know, where do you want your own life to be in 20 or 30 years? What do you want for the people who you care about? What do you want for the earth? And as you start to think about those things, work down to the ways that you can make changes in your day-to-day -day life. I mentioned some of the principles. Go read more about them at permacultureprinciples.com. Check out the beautiful art and all these ideas that Richard Telford and David Holmgren and all these other great people in the permaculture world are working through. And then once you start looking at the realm of permaculture and where you're at right now, you know, get in touch with me. Go to the permaculturepodcast.com, start looking through the archives and what's there. Um, because there's so much, if you go to iTunes or something and subscribe to the show, you're only going to get like the last year or two of the archives available in that list. But there is so much more. And so if you're looking for something and you can't find it, you know, feel free to get in touch with me. I make myself available as much as I can. And so not only is there, as I mentioned, the website, the permaculturepodcast.com, people can also email me directly, um, which is show, S-H-O-W, at the permaculturepodcast.com. Or if anybody wants to, feel free to send me um, a text message or give me a phone call, which is 717-827-6266. Yes, I think that's right. If not, I'll double check that phone number. I don't use it that often. Um, but people should be able to get me there. Or, you know, drop a letter in the mail and I'll write them back, which is the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, D-A-U-P-H-I-N, Pennsylvania, 17018. And I'm more than happy to do everything I can to answer people's questions or connect them to the resources that will make a difference for them. Wow. Got your phone number and everything. Well, listeners, I got to encourage you to call. You've got to check out his podcast first and his website and see all the amazing resources that he has been compiling since 2010, you said, right? So for eight years, nine years. Yes. 
And that's where kind of as this work is gone, I kind of feel like I'm a curator for the permaculture community because not only do I have all of those episodes that are there, I've been in touch with thousands of people in the permaculture community. I have contacts with just about anybody who you could want to get in touch with. Or if I don't know them directly, I know somebody who does. Um, you know, from any of the authors, from most of the major publishers to, you know, many of the great lecturers and teachers, you know, obviously I can't connect everybody with ev with everyone because of, you know, people's time and their privacy. But I will do my best to find some way that I can get folks what they need. Well, that's all we can ask. Thanks, Scott, so much for sharing with us today. And you have a wonderful week and spring. I will. And thank you for taking all this time with me and running as long as we did, because I really could talk about this for hours. I've made a life of it, and I just love sharing it with people. And thank you for having me on to share it with your audience. All right. Well, maybe you can come back sometime. Be more than glad to. All right. Thanks, Scott. Mm -hmm. Have a good day. Okay. So I'm shutting the recorder off, but just... Okay. I'll turn the recorder back on really quick. My final okay. question's a doozy. It's, um, sorry, I actually closed my show notes. Uh, if there is one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity organization you're passionate about or a project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? To me, I think it's about waste and garbage. And there's a, a campaign right now where folks are going out and they're cleaning up their parks and their beaches and their trails and posting pictures on social media. And I think that's a great thing to do. And it's something that I do with my son several times a year. And we almost always have some kind of a bag with us and we'll go out and we'll be collecting that stuff that is just out in our environment. And I think that it really is important to do those kinds of things because it, one, gets that refuse out of those spaces, but it also then improves the aesthetic for other people when they go there, and I think helps to connect people with these spaces because they can see the beauty that's there, and it, you know, helps to minimize what our human impacts are. It keeps plastic out of our waterways. It keeps things from running, you know, downhill into the ocean. And I'm not saying that we necessarily have to go out and be picking everything and organizing it into recycling because a lot of this stuff, you know, once it's dirty and damaged, it actually can't be recycled anyway. But let's work on getting it out of all of these spaces. And as we think about those wastes, also consider the way that we create food waste and just to minimize those impacts. I think a lot about our, you know, that idea of reduce, reuse, recycle. And there are two more that I like to add to that, which are refuse and repair. And that, you know, what are ways that we can refuse to create waste in the first place? And I think about the ways that we can look at what we do use in our life so that we can get things that last longer. And I love, um, there's, if anybody's familiar with the red site Reddit, there's this idea of buy it for life. And what are the products and ideas out there that we can purchase that will last a lifetime or longer that represent these great values that are investments that mean that we're not going to be creating more waste. And as we go through this idea of, um, you know, reduce, reuse and recycle, what are things that we can do to repair what we have, whether that's 
you know, having something like a cell phone that so many people have, buying one that has a replaceable battery, or making sure that when that battery gets a little funky and we're looking at, you know, buying something new, what about taking it to a repair center and having a new battery put in it so we can use it for a couple years longer, and then looking for a recycling program at the end of that life? What about buying, you know, clothing that will last longer and learning something as simple as, you know, replacing a button, or as we, you know, our bodies change? As happens as, you know, in particular as I get older, what about, you know, maybe having a seam let out or taken in rather than buying something new? And just what are the ways that we can reduce our waste and consumption in those ways? And I think that that's something that everybody can do, you know, like I say today, and that that has that kind of add on effect really quickly and makes a big difference. Well, my listeners know I love all that because, like, my goal for 2018 was try to, like, not use plastic as much as I can, especially since, I mean, I've always kind of been like that. I've been carrying my own grocery bags for years, but, you know, they quit recycling plastic basically in Montana um, last January when, and we already don't have very much recycling. And it's so hard to go without plastic. And when I go to my mom, she, like, practically calls me the plastic Nazi. She's like, you're just obsessed with it, but... I am glad to see people are much more interested in all the things you talked about. Like, I almost feel like recycling made us apathetic for years. Um, so, Golden Seeds just dropped there so much. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, Scott. Yes, thank you, Jackie, for having me and having this conversation. I just, I really do. I love sharing this, and I'm happy for the opportunity. Cool. Well, we're glad to have you here. So, you have a great day. I will. Take care. All right, bye. Bye. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic oasis. Um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay. What Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden. And just, um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey, uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis, um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for mother earth. Hey there, green future growers. Would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too? Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards? If so, we would love it if you would share the Organic Gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.